It's Communion Sunday. I hope that that brings with it uh, a, a blending of feelings, both joy, sorrow, uh, a mingling of uh, all that that entails as you think about what we are to celebrate uh, and the triumph that was accomplished by the Lord Jesus. We are here to partake of emblems that commemorate something much, much greater than us. Uh, and talking with the children this morning, I was encouraged by the simplicity of understanding. Sometimes we uh, overcomplicate things, when in actual fact, this is very, very simple. The Lord Jesus, I think, made it simple because we're simple people, and we needed it simple. Uh, these emblems are very, very simple, and we just need to understand the truth of them. And I hope we will today. We, we've got some, some big things to look at. I hope I don't complicate it for you but I do want to give you a full summary so that we can partake with even greater knowledge than perhaps what we have uh, right now. I want to remind us that we don't want to approach this with flippancy or careless casualness, carelessness. It's not to be a a ritual, it's to be a living reminder of a living saviour. We've been studying a glossary of glorious terms. Last month, I had planned to preach this message with uh, a few uh, less things in it that I've added to it, but we had a testimony time, if you recall, last month, which was wonderful. But today we're going to look at this particular subject. We've already looked at atonement, election, imputation and justification. Today we come to the fifth, which is propitiation. Big word, but I hope we'll simplify it. So we're going to look at propitiation today. Lord, we, uh, we come before you at this moment uh, and ask that you would help us to see and understand clearly what your word teaches. Uh, help us to appreciate all that is revealed in the scriptures, uh, that we may partake in a little while with a greater understanding, a greater appreciation uh, for all that you have accomplished. I pray you'd free us from ritualism, religion, uh, and that we would uh, come uh, to this a table with fresh eyes, uh, with a heart that uh, is ever so thankful and filled with gratitude for all that you've done. We thank you for this time. I pray you'd uh, guide and guard my lips uh, against complicating things, help it to be simple, understood to the point uh, before we partake together. In Jesus' name, amen. So no doubt we need a definition This great big word that is still in uh, the new translations of the Bible, this word propitiation, we need a definition. It's not a common word in English today, but the translators made a decision to keep it in there because that word propitiation speaks volumes. So when you look at your Bible and you think, why don't they just make these things simpler? need to understand that the Bible was not written for the world to understand it, but for the Christian to understand it. It's our responsibility to study the word and understand it. So the translators in their wisdom, and I think it was wise, included this word propitiation in our English scriptures because of what is conveyed in that word. We need to not go, that's a big word, I have no idea, let's just not worry about it. We need to go, that's a big word, what does it mean? That's what I want to do this morning. It has vast truth. It came into being in the 14th century in English, and it can be defined like this. An atonement. 
an appeasement, that which expiates, another big word, and I'll explain in a moment, that which satisfies or meets the criteria. To put it another way, propitiation has two acts involved in it. It's a two-part act. Here's what it means on one side. It appeases the wrath of an offended person over here. Okay? It appeases that wrath, extinguishes that wrath that a person may have. And on the other side, it brings reconciliation. Okay? It's a two-part act, appeasing the wrath of one and also bringing with it reconciliation between two parties. Okay? That's what it means. Literally, if we're going to just take this word literally, it means to make favourable. Propitiation is to make favourable. And this word, interestingly enough, is almost always used in the realm of religion. Not necessarily true religion in Christianity, but always a religious term. Propitiation is always a religious term. Appeasing wrath, bringing reconciliation to make favourable. It deals with God taking care of the wrath he has against sinners and sin. Okay, We're going to explain some more about that in a moment. Now, if you take this word propitiation and its original Latin and Greek words, if you go back in history, you're going to find that it's actually used a great deal in pagan religions. This word is a very pagan word in its original um, usage. For example, in historical writings, you would read of sentences like this. He made an offering to propitiate the anger of the gods. Okay, well through Greek mythology. Or the temple was once the site of sacrifices, both to honor the gods in times of plenty and to propitiate them in times of trouble. I want for a few moments us to get the picture of the manners and the customs of the day in which this word is being used. Okay? There are many places today still whereby little tribes of people gather together and when there is atmospheric problems, when there is weather problems in their uh, little tribe, they often uh, associate that with the anger of a god and therefore seek a way to propitiate their God. You go to PNG, you go to some of these islands around about, and you will find that people will even go so far as sacrificing their own life and blood for the sake of saving a culture. Or they will take that little child of theirs and they will burn it alive in order to uh, propitiate the volcanic gods. These are real things that I have literal truths in my office that I printed out to look at. That people today are still seeking to propitiate, satisfy, appease the wrath of these pagan gods. In fact, in 1 Kings, we don't have a lot of time this morning. In 1 Kings chapter 18, do you recall that passage in scripture where Elijah is on Mount Carmel? And he's going to call down the fire from heaven. But first of all, the, uh, the prophets of Baal try to do theirs. They build their altar and all day long they are screaming out for their God to answer by fire. You remember that story? And partway through it, it says they begin to cut 
themselves. You know what they were doing? They were saying masochistically, if I begin to cut myself, I will get the favor of God. He will answer my prayer and provide the fire in the midst of these people. And that's when Elijah becomes sarcastic and says, maybe your God's asleep, etc., etc. And he has a go at them. But that was a great example in scripture of when someone took on this idea of propitiation in relationship to paganism. I want to give you a couple of other examples. If you quickly turn with me to 2 Kings, I want to give you the background. I think it's necessary for our understanding of this matter of propitiation. 2 Kings and chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to confess right up front, we're not going to read all the context of it. You'll need to do that yourself. But I just want to pull out a couple of things here we see. 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 26 <clears throat> 2 Kings 3 and verse 26, we read this. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. This man... The king took his oldest son who was going to reign in his place and he offered him as a burnt offering on the wall in order to gain the victory for the gods of war to take control here. That's an example in the Bible of this very thing. In 2 Kings chapter 17, just turn over a few places. That's pretty bad in the pagan world. But have a look at 2 Kings 17. This ought to make us cringe. And verse 16... 2 Kings 17 and verse 16, speaking of the children of Israel. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Can you imagine? God's people. These are God's people. They know what Leviticus says. They know what it says in Exodus 20. They know what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And here they come along and they offer their children to these gods, burning them in the fire in order to appease pagan gods. Wow. That is making propitiation in the realm of paganism. Very important we understand this because in our human uh, logic, this is propitiation on a human level. This is where we end up if we think that we have to do something ourselves in order to gain salvation. I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to do that. I'm going to have to propitiate to appease the wrath of God and bring reconciliation. Now, what I want to do this morning... So I want to give you the difference between pagan propitiation and biblical propitiation. In pagan propitiation, which is what we just looked at, the gods need to be satisfied because they are grumpy and impulsive. I will never forget in philosophy in school, probably one of the only subjects I really, really loved at school. I I love that subject of philosophy in school. As you can imagine, I was all into it. And uh, it was a Christian school, and we studied Greek mythology. And one thing that struck me so much 
was how grumpy these gods are. They are just so impulsive and grumpy. At an instant, you do the slightest thing and they're ready to zap you in that Greek mythology. I was amazed by it. So when we talk about pagan propitiation, we need to understand the gods of pagan mythology, which we know are not true gods, don't care much about humans. Except when something upsets them, then they smite. Okay, That's the pagan mythology. By the way, that pervades all of culture today. Mother Nature, don't upset Mother Nature. We hear it all the time. We don't even realise. Don't upset this, don't upset that. That is all propitiatory concepts as it real, uh, in the realm of pagan mythology. So in pagan propitiation, it is the human responsibility to make the gods happy and appease their anger. They get busy doing things or sacrificing to make up for whatever, the, whatever they've done to anger the gods. And you know the stories. The humans find something that the gods like. Sweets, meat, pain, blood, whatever it is. And they offer it as a bribe to calm their wrathful deities. Okay, That's how it works in the human concept of pagan propitiation. Just want to inject a little comment here. Sometimes we as Christians operate in the realm of pagan propitiation as it relates to God. We think, you know what, here I am. Uh, I'm a Christian, I've done this wicked, terrible thing, this sin that cannot be mentioned, or whatever it is, I've done this or I've done that, and suddenly we feel I need to pay God back some way. We enter into pagan propitiation in that realm if we think that we can somehow pay God back. Now, that's not how Christianity works, and we can be quite involved in that realm. Look at what I've done, I need to pay God back in some way. Let me say this to us this morning. There is nothing like this kind of propitiation in the pages of Scripture for the Christian, okay, as it relates to the Lord Jesus. So let me give you quickly three key distinctions between pagan propitiation and biblical propitiation. Everybody still with me? I know I'm using that big word, propitiation, about 25 times a sentence, okay, but just let me get this to us so we understand it. Here are three things. Here are three ways that the propitiation of Jesus Christ is different to pagan propitiation. First of all, the reason. Number one, the reason. Why does God require propitiation? Because he does. It's not because he's moody. Okay? It's not because he's impulsive or easily provoked. It's because he is holy. That's the difference. He's holy and he's just. Holiness means that he is distinct from everything else. So everything else that is sinful and evil and wicked and under the curse of sin, creation itself groans under that. All of those realms, they are so separate and different to God because he is holy. He does not require propitiation because he hates you. He requires propitiation because his character is holy. That's the reason. These other gods are not holy gods. They are vengeful, moody, self-absorbed gods. Our God, our true one and only God, Jehovah, is holy. God responds to sin with absolute consistency. And his wrath, the Bible says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. That's the reason he's holy. Secondly, how is it different? Initiative. In the realm of initiative. 
Who initiates biblical propitiation? It's not humans. In pagan propitiation, I begin to cut myself. I begin to try and appease the wrath of God. If I try hard enough, if I give enough, if I sacrifice my children, if I, if I do this or that, maybe then I'll gain the favour of this pagan God. Over here, when we come to biblical propitiation, it is not the human who initiates propitiation. It's God himself. You say, how's that? God declares what kind of sacrifice he accepts. And then... He provides it. He says, I require a holy sacrifice. I require a sinless sacrifice. I require someone who can substitute for these humans that are sinful and under the curse of sin. I require that. Nobody can find it. I will provide it. There's a big difference. His initiative. It's the reason is he's holy. His initiative is he initiates it. And then thirdly, the means. What kind of sacrifice brings about biblical propitiation? What appeases the wrath of God and brings reconciliation? It's not a bribe. God doesn't want some sweets. God isn't like the tooth fairy. That's not what God is like. He doesn't need something nice to tide him over until his anger comes again. No, he requires the perfect son of God, who is the only one who meets the criteria The only one who can appease fully the wrath of God against sin and then bring about reconciliation. We need to understand the different types of propitiation because there is only one that is true. There is a whole world of propitiatory concepts. But biblical propitiation, the reason is God is holy. The initiative is God's and the means is God himself, the Son. It's found right throughout the scripture, this matter of propitiation. Now, I hope you appreciated that introduction. Now we're going to get into the preaching. <laughs> I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And we're going to race through points like you've never seen us race through them. Luke chapter 18. The first thing that we're going to learn about propitiation is that justification demands propitiation. Point one, justification demands propitiation. Now, we just learned what justification is. Someone tell me, please, what is justification? What does that mean? What was it? Someone said something. To be set right, to be declared righteous. Justification is to be declared righteous. So in order to be declared righteous, there must be propitiation, we're saying. And I want to show you something that was... Remarkable when I studied this out. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. This is the Lord Jesus. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And that should give us an indication of what the Lord Jesus is about to do. Some who thought they were righteous and he treated and treated others with contempt. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This guy has a few problems, don't you think? 
Okay, then we get to the next one, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We know this picture. Pharisee publican one thinks that they've got it all worked out because of the deeds they're doing they're thinking that they are acquiring a righteousness because of what's being done the other here recognizes i can't do anything my sin has has drowned me my only hope is to beat upon my breast and ask for god to be merciful to me otherwise i have no hope by the way there is no other entrance into the kingdom of god unless it is by means of this individual over here who says god if you're not going to be merciful i have no hope But what I found so interesting about this matter of propitiation is look at verse 13. He beat upon his breast saying, God, be merciful. Now, in the English, we look at that and we say, "Okay, yeah, that makes sense. But when you take your Greek Bible, you find that the word God be merciful is the word propitiation. You know what he's saying? He is saying, God, be propitiatus towards me. This is what he's saying. He's saying, God, appease your wrath that is poured out upon me and bring reconciliation to me that I might be all that I can be before you. He's not just simply saying, God, withhold your wrath against me. Be merciful. But he's actually saying, bring me to a place where something other than me is propitiatory, appeases your wrath and brings me to yourself. This is the exact word for propitiation in the Bible, except translated differently in the English. He's saying, make reconciliation for me. The Schofield Bible, in its notes on this text, says this. In speaking as the publican, he says, Be toward me as thou art when thou lookest upon the atoning blood. This is what he's saying. He's saying, uh, I can't do anything on my own unless your wrath is appeased, unless you bring reconciliation. I haven't got a hope. For us... This morning, church, my great concern for us here is that there may well be those in our midst right now who, like the Pharisee, think that the works that they do, the deeds of the law, trying to appease God through doing, that there may be those here who are trusting in that. Whereas the only way for any person to be justified, declared righteous, is exactly like the publican, is to realize it doesn't matter about the Pharisee. It doesn't matter about anything else. What matters is that if God does not propitiate for me, I have no hope. If there is not the means by which his wrath is appeased in his son and I am brought to the father by means of the son, I have no hope. And my concern right throughout church, right throughout the world, is that we've got heaps and heaps and heaps of people sitting in pews everywhere this morning, listening to people preach all over this country who are in this category 
and have never understood the reality of this category. Nobody can have salvation unless it is by propitiation and biblical, not pagan. Justification demands propitiation. Why don't you turn to Romans chapter 3, please, as we look at our second point. Romans chapter 3, turning to a few places, and verse 20. Justification demands propitiation is point one. Point two is this. Propitiation denotes a problem. For there to need to be a propitiatory sacrifice, that which appeases the wrath of God, there must be a problem. And we're going to look at what the problem is. Romans 3 and verse 20. This is what uh, Paul says. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But... Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice in this next phrase, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There's a problem for all have sinned, for all have fallen short of the perfect standard of the righteousness of God. Nobody meets the standard. Nobody meets the criteria. No human born in this life of natural birth can ever attain God's righteousness and his standard of holiness. It is an impossibility. And God knows that. And so what does God do? He gives his son put forward as a appeasement, a propitiation. The means by which you can become favorable instead of under condemnation. It denotes a problem. This morning as we partake in a little while, we need to remember that without God's intervention... Without God's initiative, without God's plan of salvation secured before time began, we have no hope. We have zero hope in this life. We have absolutely no means of appeasing God's holy wrath over sin. Let me pause a moment too because people get a bit funny about this whole concept of God's wrath. God is a wrathful God, but it's not wrathful like we are. It's a wrath over sin that comes from his holiness. He's perfect. He's holy. We can't even fathom that. Therefore, he must hate that which is evil. You've heard me say this many times here at this uh, assembly. If you love children, you will hate abortion. That's a good illustration of God's holiness. If you love righteousness, you must hate that which is unrighteous. And that's exactly how our God operates. Point number three. I want you to see in this same text of Romans chapter 3, verse 20 through to 26. I want you to note that propitiation demands blood. Propitiation demands blood. We read here in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood just as a quick 
side line here, and I want to be very careful about how I say this. People can get overemphasized, they can overemphasize the blood of Christ. Now, before you throw me off the pulpit here, let me just explain what I mean. Okay? I know people who all they want to talk about is blood, 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 blood. Okay? Now, the blood itself. The physical blood of Jesus Christ is not the means by which we are saved. Okay? Did you get that? The physical blood. So here's what I mean. Now, I, I talk to people about this and they say, well, hang on. Are you saying that the blood of Christ isn't important? No, of course I'm not saying that. Of course it's important. What I'm saying is that if the blood shed of Jesus Christ was sufficient for our salvation, then after his scourging, we could all be saved and go home. Because plenty of blood was poured out around his scourging. It's not the blood itself. It's the death of the one who is perfect on our behalf that provides reconciliation. Now, you say, hang on, well, they could have just hung him by the neck. No, they couldn't have. Because the Bible tells us that his blood would be shed for the sins of his people. So he had to die a death that involved blood. But his physical blood is not the criteria of salvation. It's the death of the perfect Lamb of God through the means by which the blood was shed that we are saved. Do you understand the difference? It's not just simply about here is his physical blood. We want to be very careful about that. And what we're saying here is that the propitiation by his blood, his blood and his death are synonyms. We're dealing with a synonymous truth here. Propitiation demands blood, but not just blood that's shed from some, but blood that results in death. And it could only be by a perfect lamb of God, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. Number four, turn with me to 1 John, please. We're almost there. Actually, we're not, but we're going to finish early. 1 John chapter 4. Justification demands propitiation, number one. Propitiation denotes a problem. Number three, propitiation demands blood or death. And then fourthly, propitiation necessitates substitution. Necessitates substitution. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. Again, I don't have the time to read everything around it for us. In this is love. You say, what is love? Here it is. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our Sins. 1 John 4 and verse 10. Why did God send his son? To become the substitute for our sins. You couldn't do it. Pagans over here are trying to appease the wrath of God. They're trying and they're working and their their, their effort and their time, etc., etc., is going into this over here. It cannot be done by any human effort. Therefore, the Lord Jesus comes along as the perfect Son of God, born of a virgin that we read about in the Scripture, and He lays down His life. His precious blood flows, but His death is the means of salvation for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives us a wonderful synopsis of the gospel. What's the gospel? This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. For our sins. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
so many places we could look. I think we know that. I think I tell us that probably every message I preach. Substitution. What an incredible term. What an incredible topic. The fifth thing I'd like us to see. Propitiation requires perfection. We mentioned this earlier. But the holy standard of God requires perfection. That's why this whole group over here trying to do it can never achieve it because we are not perfect. We are unable to ever achieve to the the standard of righteousness and holiness that God demands. We cannot do it. Therefore, someone must take our place. It requires perfection. Only one who is untainted by sin could ever appease the wrath of a holy God. I've had someone ask me not too long ago, is it essential that I believe that Jesus is perfect? The answer to that question is a resounding yes. Yes, you must. If you think that he was tainted by sin, he is disqualified on every level to ever be your substitute. He died as a madman. And I say that reverently. If Jesus Christ is not perfect and holy in every sense, then he simply died for a dream and we are following someone who is imperfect. That is an impossibility. In fact, it's so impossible that if that were a reality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, our faith is in vain. This is a waste of time. What we are doing this morning is a total waste of time if Jesus Christ is not totally perfect in every way. The Bible is a lie as well because we read in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. In Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted like we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. John 8.29, and he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What man in history, in honesty, could actually say before God the Father, I do always the things that are pleasing to my Father? I can't. In fact, I would say more often than not, I often do the things that do not please my Father in heaven. The Lord Jesus was perfect in every way. One final point. Romans chapter 5. One more turn if you would please. Romans chapter 5. And you know my struggles with staying short in Romans chapter 5. That's a well known fact. Because Romans 5 is what an incredible passage it is. But we're going to limit ourselves to verse 6 through to 11. As we consider the... Sixth and final point, propitiation provides reconciliation. Provides reconciliation. Verse 6 of chapter 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to be perfect. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What an incredible portion of scripture. Justified by his blood, verse 9. Notice at the end of verse 9 there, saved by him from the wrath of God. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, you have a problem with the gospel message because that's what it says right here. God is filled with anger over sin. But we've been saved by that. It's been appeased It hasn't gone away. By the way, this is really important to theology. We're talking about theology here this morning. We need to understand something. God's wrath did not disappear. God didn't withdraw his wrath. God didn't suddenly overlook it and go, you know what? Doesn't matter. Here's the Lord Jesus. Here's my son. Now I can withdraw my wrath. That's not what happened. What happened is he poured it out in its fullness onto his son. It was not withdrawn, it was poured out in its fullness. The cup that the Lord Jesus was going to drink and he went forward and drank it was the cup filled of God's wrath that he said, if there is a way. And was there a way? There was no way. There was only one way to go through that, to drink the cup, the full wrath of God on our behalf. So don't for a moment think, wow, hey, this is really good. We we got by. You did get by in an incredible way, but the wrath of God was still poured out in its fullness. It wasn't withdrawn. But it'll be never upon you because it was poured out on the Son. When God the Father looks at you as a believer now, He does not look at you in your sin, but in His Son. Incredible theological truth. But this propitiation, this appeasing of the wrath of God, the final aspect of it is that it brings us to the offended party and brings resolution in reconciliation in Christ. This is amazing. We were enemies of God. We were those who literally were spiting him and hating him. The wonderful illustration of uh, uh, the the person who has uh, got out of the lifeboat, so to speak. And instead of looking for the safety of Jesus Christ, we were swimming away from him. That's our sin. We were swimming away from God and from Christ. And the Lord Jesus came along and rescued us and brought us back to the safety of the lifeboat in God. That is what has occurred in reconciliation. Two offended parties are brought together and reconciled. It's an amazing thing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many things we could mention, but I want to close with... Some applications for us as we partake in a moment. As I say all the time, this is just theory. This is just academic assent. This is worthless if this doesn't make changes for us. So here's some thoughts as we close. If you get a hold, if you get a handle on this concept of propitiation, here's what it'll do. It will help you understand sin in all of its heinous nature. And then when you understand sin for what it is, you will then understand the glory and the greatness of the gospel. The blacker you can see sin through the pages of scripture, 
the more you will be confronted with the holiness and glory and power and majesty and magnificence of propitiation. One thing that will change if we understand this, and this might seem like a really simple thing, but it'll change the way you sing the hymns. You say, what? Why will understanding the doctrine of propitiation change how I sing and worship? I'll tell you how it'll change because those will not just be words on a slideshow there. Those will be words that will move us like you have not been moved before. The holy lamb was stricken, abandoned and alone. He bore the world's affliction. He bore it as his own. For me, he was forsaken. For me, he died alone. My sin forever taken that I might be his own. And when my heart is broken, torn by my sin and pride, the Son of God now risen will draw me to his side. For me, he was forsaken. It'll change everything. It will change how you give thanks, as we will in a minute. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied glory to His name. It'll change how we sing our songs. When we come to a song like, Why should He love me, a sinner undone? Why, tell me, why should He care? I do not merit the love He has shown. Why, tell me, why should He care? How will our gratitude change when we understand what the Lord Jesus has done? There's so many more things. I just want to close with this last one. Here we go. One more thing for us to think about. We will come to appreciate our identity in Christ. Um, I am a person who needs identity. I need to understand who I am. Why am I here? What am I doing? What's my purpose? What's the point of everything? Why, why do I do what I do? I am not satisfied going through the ritualism of life, going moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day, trying to figure out what in the world am I actually doing here. That bothers me a lot. Sometimes I sit at work and I think, what am I doing? I need to know, why am I doing what I'm doing? When we come to understand propitiation... We understand our identity redeemed, justified, quickened, regenerated, adopted, transformed, and all these other wonderful truths. When we understand that, that will change how we live our life. I am not my own. I am bought with a price. I'm adopted. I've entered into the family of God. These things will change us dramatically as we understand this matter of propitiation. I'm going to leave it there because time is up and there are so many more things that could be said. I hope that this matter of God's wrath being appeased in his son and our reconciliation coming to take place moves your heart. That as you take part in just a little while, you say, praise be to the Lord for the propitiatory sacrifice. Even if you can't say the word, doesn't matter. Don't worry about whether you can say the word. Just understand what it means. Okay, if you spit it out, it sounds a bit funny, propitiation. If you can't get it out, that doesn't matter. But it does matter that you understand what has happened in that realm of propitiation. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this term. What a glorious term it is. Lord, we're thankful for the translators leaving it here in our English Bible, that we might study it, that we might uh, come to a greater understanding of what is contained within it. As we partake in a few moments, Lord, may you... Cause us to be ever so mindful of what you have accomplished for us. 
Thank you. Thank you for salvation, for the gospel. And for allowing us the privilege of entering into a relationship with you that is eternal. An everlasting covenant drawn by the cords of love initiated by God. We are blood-bought brothers and sisters and may that change our relationship as well with one another. May we quickly reconcile with one another because of the means by which you've reconciled us to yourself. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.